0: Hello. You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. Each episode of our show paints itself into a different corner of life in Brooklyn and delivers stories, sounds, and scenery from the people and places that make it home. And until the pandemic paint dries, we'll be sheltered at the intersection of disease and democracy on a corner we've been calling 1920. Today it's April 10th and tomorrow never dies. If novel times call for revolutionary measures, then the American workforce is answering the call. Amazon, Instacart, and Chipotle employees who have put their lives on the line to serve the COVID-stricken city now risk their livelihood in the name of hazard pay, sick leave, and protective equipment. The federal fight over billions and trillions in relief that never comes or does in acronyms and checks. Checks that wouldn't cover rent for the average New Yorker and checks that won't arrive for our undocumented neighbors. Recession can be opportunity if you can afford it, and a cold you caught at work can be a killer if you can't. And as workers organize, walk out, and stop work for fair treatment, and unemployment rates climb towards all-time heights, a labor-led momentum is moving the country toward the only logical conclusion of centuries of greed, a systematic breakdown, and a chance to rebuild. This week, we're washing the invisible hand. First, we ride the ferry to get to the other side. Then we see the city change through a man who's seen it all. Next, we try to pick a place, but there's nothing left to choose from. Then we go under the radar and the pressure on the job. Next, we ride along into a long, hard night. Then we look to the future with an eye on the fair. Next, we look everywhere for what the city needs the most of. Then we feed a wildcat and follow where it leads. Next, we make the call, and the call makes us go mad. And finally, we check the weather. In the tale of two cities, there are two sides to every story. Which side are you on in Brooklyn, USI?
1: There is a saying in Spanish that goes like, Como me la pintes, yo brinco. It essentially means, whatever type of situation you put in front of me, I will be resilient and I will figure it out on how to go about it. My name is Yesenia Matam, I am the executive director of La Colmena a day labor and immigration rights advocacy organization based in Staten Island, New York. Majority of the people believe that the day laborer is just one person that stands in the corner and that's it. And they just stand there and and see who picks them up. No, you know, the the day laborer is the immigrant father, the immigrant mother, that's just trying to feed their family. Whether it's dishwashing, whether it is working in, in a restaurant, making food, whether it is, um waiting for someone to pick them up for for a construction job or to to do gardening to, to clean your homes. You see, that is what the day labor is. My father himself, he was a day laborer when he first arrived. And he would tell me that he, he used to clean dishes, that he was a busboy, that he used to make food, that he used to be a construction worker. He would tell me I did it all, miha. As soon as the Corona crisis hit, it began having a huge financial impact on most New Yorkers, especially on the undocumented community. Some of the challenges that the immigrant workers from La Colmena tell me is that people stop hiring them to do cleaning, to do gardening, to do construction work, that People just didn't want to hire them anymore. Also those that worked in restaurants, they told me that they got laid off. I went to go speak with immigrant owned businesses and all of them would tell me that one of the hardest things was laying off their employees because they were also immigrants themselves. There was an emergency bill that passed that it would be a relief fund for most Americans, to help them with any financial hardship that they are going through. However, what it didn't include was the undocumented worker, including those that have paid taxes. They don't got paid sick leave. They don't have a vacation leave. They don't have none of that. We have most people telling other individuals, oh, stay home, be safe, stay inside. What most people don't understand is that the immigrant worker does not have that luxury. The immigrant worker does not have that privilege to stay home and, and wait this out.
2: Remain indoors to the greatest extent to protect physical and mental health. Uh, so we're going to put out an executive order today. New York State on pause. Policies that assure uniform safety for everyone, for everyone, for everyone.
1: Each time they tell me that they wish they can stay home with their family, that they wish they didn't have to come outside because they are afraid. They are afraid of, of getting sick. They are afraid every time they come back home and just thinking about that because of them being outside that they could get their children or their, or their wives or their loved ones sick. not only is the immigrant worker afraid of catching the virus and getting sick and getting the loved ones sick once they come home but they are also afraid of ice you see on the day that this administration announced that they were going to halt ice rates and only conduct ice rates based on the individual based if the individual possessed a threat to national security on that same day, ICE conducted ICE raids on the island and detained three individuals. Their families came to La Conmena and told us that ICE had just conducted ICE raids at their home about 6 a.m. in the morning, and then some of them were wearing vests that said police, and that others were identifying themselves as police. And when I asked them what type of conviction that they have, or I wanted to know more about their their background, they told me that they only had misdemeanors. They still had not been found guilty. Uh, All of them had pending court dates. When I learned about their cases, they did not possess a threat to national security. I am in the U.S. Army, I am a military police, and I can tell you that those Individuals that were detained did not possess a threat to national security. Okay. Okay. Not only are they not being included in this emergency relief fund, not only are they being ignored by by any sort of relief fund that is being provided out there, but unfortunately, too, they have to worry about ICE detaining them. These three individuals that were detained on that day were sent to Bergen County. In Bergen County, there already have been cases of coronavirus. Right now, the immigrant workers are afraid of going to work because they're afraid of catching the virus. They are afraid of getting detained by ICE, but not only getting detained by ICE, but now they're afraid if they get detained that they're gonna be sent to these detention centers and then they're going to catch the virus. It baffles me how we are currently in a national crisis and this is still happening. This administration indicates that they're trying to decrease this virus, but yet they are still detaining people, still sending them to detention centers, and this is only going to keep spreading. At this point, the immigrant worker is afraid, right, to even go to the hospital and ask for help if they feel sick because of ICE, because there has been situation where ICE has gone to hospitals, despite the person being in critical conditions.
3: Venegas was
4: on the way to the hospital with her husband when two cars surround her vehicle. She says they were ICE agents.
5: That's when agents, agents had here. him step
4: out of the vehicle. When he to got out, they put him into custody. Her husband has no criminal history. That police have never stopped him. And he's never had a ticket. <laughs>
1: Stein Island is one of the most conservative boroughs in New York City. This is where this administration, this current president, got his most votes. But even though this borough is very conservative, there are still a huge amount of, of people that support the immigrant community. When this crisis hit, we had many US citizens, majority Caucasians, contacting LAC women and said, Yesenia, how can I help? Can I please help out a family? Can I please sponsor a family? I want to help out. It's people like those that are fighting back and saying that no, we accept immigrants, and this is an immigrant borough, an immigrant welcoming borough. La Colmena in English means beehive. And you see, that is exactly what La Colmena represents. And beehives, you have all these bees coming together to make honey. Their mission is what keeps them going. That is what keeps us going. The mission to continue representing our immigrant community and empowering our immigrant community and ensuring that the immigrant community gets the respect that they deserve. If you want everyone to stay home, well, you know what? Include the immigrant worker in these emergency relief funds and stop excluding them.
0: The opinions expressed in the following message are those of an individual member of the NYPD and are not an official statement from or on behalf of the New York Police Department.
6: What I've been witnessing and experiencing since the outbreak of coronavirus COVID-19 in New York is an exponential increase in calls for people who are unconscious at home. And when my officers respond, they confirm that the person is a DOA, you know, dead on arrival. And in responding, what we're learning is the person had flu-like symptoms. Many times they, they did have pre-existing conditions that the COVID exacerbated to the point that, uh, you know, it took their lives. Um, this has been an insane experience because on average, we might get three to five DOAs a month. And in five days, I, I've had to deal with nine. In my precinct alone, uh, a precinct right next door they've had nineteen in forty eight hours and that 's just the last numbers that I remembered this, this hasn't been a good experience whatsoever It's been really tough on on officers, and you know, I continue to stay as protected as possible, but as a as an essential worker in, in law enforcement, unfortunately, there is no social distancing for me because once something occurs, I have to take police action. but if more people were inside less things would occur. And unfortunately, what we're finding is a lot of people not practicing social distancing. People are out and about. A lot of people I'm stopping in the street, you know, I've I've broken up photo shoots, kids playing soccer in the park, you know, and I question them, what's going on? What are you doing? Why are you out here? This is non-essential, you know, and they're misinformed. Some people think certain ethnicities mean you're immune to this. Others thought as long as they were young, they had nothing to worry about. Um, one of the things that, that I've noticed are domestic situations, people being quarantined together for lack of a better word, you know, where work or, or school or some other function outdoors was probably an escape. People are not having that, that option. So it's causing in situations where there's already a domestic violence incidents. I've noticed a slight increase amongst romantic partners. Even just family members. That's been my experience on the front lines of dealing with this, responding to people dead at home. I've never seen anything like this. This is unbelievable. It's it's insane. And it it really exposes how fragile our system is and how much it's not structured to deal with um, those who have less.
0: Though not officially counted amongst the city's essential businesses, Brooklyn's bars and restaurants are the marrow in its bones. They're where you meet your friends, where you leave your lover, wish a happy birthday, where you say goodbye. And while some will still deliver things like brunch and drinks and toilet paper, it's likely the last closing time where everybody knows your name ticked by a few weeks ago by order of the state. This week, our producer Ross caught up with three of the owners of some of Brooklyn's most beloved... Bars, cafes, and restaurants that feed, enrich, and nourish the communities they serve with a side of style. Here's Ross. What's going on? How are
7: things? Um, I I should mention at the beginning, I'm I'm recording right now. Is that cool?
8: Yeah, that's fine. Okay,
7: great. Do you, do you mind starting off just sort of
4: by introducing yourself and and telling me your um, your businesses?
8: My name is Lucian Redwood. I'm the owner of Bittersweet in Brooklyn, and I'm also the owner of Sit and Wonder in Brooklyn as well.
4: Yeah, my name is Nate Smith. Um, I'm the chef and the owner operator of Allswell in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and Barbalinas in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn.
9: This is Chelsea Altman. I own a bunch of places in Brooklyn, Olaya in Fort Greene, Pekenia Restaurant in Fort Greene, White Tiger in Prospect Heights, Barbelinas in Clinton Hill, and Allswell in Williamsburg, as well as two bars in Bushwick, Birdies and Old Stanley's. I'm, I'm a co-owner in these places. Well, we've been shut down at all of these locations except for Pequenia and White Tiger where we're doing delivery takeout service. Uh, we already had a fairly strong takeout delivery business in those two places, so we decided to keep it open and, and see how that went.
8: We shut down. I shut down Bittersweet and Sit and Wonder uh, a little over two weeks ago.
4: Uh, on I guess it was the fifteenth, uh, we pretty much saw a real steep decline when everything was sort of trying to slow everything down and people just stopped coming in. So we we made the decision to close, and then a few hours later, the city. Or the state had made the decision to make it mandatory.
8: I could have stayed open but but I just felt it was the I don't know it just it just didn't feel right to me. You know I mean people lining up for uh, you know scones and stuff. <laughs> you know Ooh. I just felt the best thing for me to do was to close down and kind of get off the street.
4: We um gave all of our prepared food to staff when we closed. As far as the vegetables and all that kind of stuff went, we uh, gave that to staff, and then we also used that for personal use. Like basically, mm-hmm. the first two weeks of being closed, we were just eating a lot of bok choy and <laughs> kale, and you know, basically <laughs> trying try to get through some of the stuff that was in the restaurant. And what about your staff? What about your employees? They're all
8: they're all uh, they're all on unemployment now.
9: The delivery business that we've done, it's not. I mean, definitely doesn't make any money. I I feel good that people who want to work are still able to work and they're rotating working. So everyone gets a little bit and it is tricky. I mean, again, we're not making money. So it really is about generating something for our workers because not everybody actually can get very much in unemployment or can get unemployment at all.
8: My wife started a GoFundMe for uh, the Bittersweet staff and the Sit and Wonder staff, which were able to uh, raise some money to help them through this this hard time.
4: It was the end of the week, and we felt like if we closed on Sunday, we would be able to lay everybody off, and then they would be able to collect unemployment that week right away. It was sort of like a strategic maneuver to allow for all the um, employees to be able to collect uh, unemployment. And, you know, I wonder about that process, like when you make that decision, there's no handbook for something like this for a small restaurant owner,
10: right?
9: We're looking at all different ways of reconfiguring things. I would say that before Corona even hit and we were faced with this challenge, restaurant operators were already struggling in the restaurant business. There have been so many increases in expenses over the last few years that it's very hard now to... Eke out even a meager living in this industry, and I'm—we've all been struggling and trying to figure out how to make a model that really works, where you know everyone is paid fairly and it's still a profitable business. So we were already faced with that challenge, and now we have this new—we have new challenges. I think one of the things that we're learning from this experience is that it's a day-to-day reality
4: i think if it was like happening to us individually it would feel a lot crazier like i know a lot of restaurants stayed open for delivery and takeout and we started entertaining the idea but at at that point it seemed like even the places that were open for takeout and delivery were closing as well and then it's just like you know the anxiety around whether or not by having people come in and work like are they putting themselves at risk which you know i guess we all are if we are interacting with people who are not in our controlled environment you know,
11: are you um are you applying
4: at all for the um, for any small business administration loans or grants?
8: Yeah, I mean, I've 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 applied for you know you know all those grants and loans, but uh, I don't know. We'll just
4: we'll just see we'll just see. Yeah, we applied for the disaster relief from the small business association, and then we also did the PPP, the Payroll Protection Program, that yeah. does the uh, that does the forgivenesses for rent, utilities, and payroll. You know, we have is confirmations that we've applied. We have, haven't heard from anybody yet. In fact, even on the SBA website, you know, you have the option to click for like a $10,000 like grant that basically they would get to you right away. And, and that hasn't come either. And that was like a, a week and a half ago that I applied, maybe a week ago that I applied.
9: So in the places that are shut down entirely, we need some sort of stimulus package, some kind of bailout as opposed to a loan. Restaurant owners can't take out more loans and be in more debt. So they've come up with this PPP loan. And it sounds great in some ways, but there are still challenges because you really have to be fully operational again in order for the loans to be forgiven. And I don't see how we're going to be fully operational within the window of time that, that we can use this loan money. <laughs> it just doesn't seem feasible. It seems like when we do open up again, it, it's not going to be with a big bang because we're still going to have to maintain some social distance. So we've been waiting and waiting for this money from the government. We need to get it quickly. And because of this poor leadership, we're seeing a situation where we don't know how to act. It's, it's like, almost feels like trick money, these loans. Are they going to be forgiven? Are they not? Are we going to be able to get them? Are we not? When we first applied, Bank of America said, you have to have a credit card with our company. And we didn't have any credit cards. And so we protested. And by the end of the day, that was taken off and we were able to apply. It just feels like this isn't something we should be winning, this money. This is for our government to help us to reopen so that we can keep the economy going, so that we can pay people, so we can be open. And it's a crummy feeling.
8: To tell you the truth, man, I was like depressed. <laughs> me and me and a lot of other people. Because this thing could go on for weeks, could go on for months. I I don't really I don't really know. No one no one really knows, you know? So um I'm just waiting it out to see how things go.
9: Operators aren't getting any personal relief, you know. I'm hoping that maybe through unemployment, and then there's this other thing called PAUS or something that's supposed to maybe give us some support. But right now, um, none of this money from these loans or grants gives any economic relief, any income to operators.
4: Nobody wants to go into debt over this thing. You know, like bad enough that you had to stop everything and basically throw away all your business. And then, if, you know, to restart up the restaurant, we're going to have to rebuy all the product. And who knows if the customers are going to return in the same capacity? You know, if there's a 50 percent drop in sales, then that's nail in the coffin for
9: us there will be places that can't reopen there will be people moving out of New York City so when we do reopen it's going to look different and how are we going to protect the restaurants from that
8: because you know the suite has been open for 14 years and and I've hardly closed (laughs) you know and um so it was I was just kind of sitting around thinking, like, oh, my God, what am I going to do?
9: We were approached by the hospital to do some catering for them, and that that feels really good. Um, I mean, I think we all are sitting here wanting to feel connected.
8: Well, I'm starting tomorrow, this thing that uh, do you know Jeffrey Wright, the actor? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he lives in the neighborhood. He started this, this thing called Brooklyn for Life. And uh-huh. he got me involved. So I start tomorrow. What I'm doing is I'm making a Sandwiches for the first responders. Like tomorrow, I'm making 100 sandwiches for Presbyterian Hospital, and Friday, I'm doing 200 for uh, Woodhall. It's it's something that he he started, and and uh, he um, he got some funds through a GoFundMe and some other uh, people because he's pretty well connected. It's, it's a good thing. It's a good thing yeah. that we're like delivering sandwiches to the to the hospitals, the people that work there.
4: So basically, right now. Both restaurants are just at a standstill. That's where you know, starting to do the the CSA style, um, Fresh Food Friends is what we're calling it. (laughs) You know, it started with just doing, wanted to try to get some fresh vegetables that like, that we could rely on, that we knew where they're coming from. And just based on people's needs, the immediate group, it seems like it's growing into being more pantries and pantry items and things like that. And we started with 12 people. You know, we're delivering it to their house. So we can't do too many More at this moment but we're going to up it to be be 24 groups now and each week I purchase the vegetables and figure out how to break it up so that it all fits within a $35 budget and next week I'll be posting like more options because people are like oh I need you know flour and I need salt and rice and and, and all these things so I'm like well I'll have it at the restaurant to just try to sell out what inventory I have at the moment you know.
7: Oh, one last thing I just going to ask. If there's anything
4: the public can do, anybody who might be hearing this, we'll just see. Just, you know, I'm
8: just um, a little, I don't know, I'm kind of lost for words.
9: It would be really nice if our government would say, here you go. Here's the money you need to reopen and have a healthy, functioning business.
4: I just think if there's a message to send is to say when the restaurants that can reopen and will reopen, to just go out and support them.
2: There are over 725,000 undocumented New Yorkers who, despite paying over a billion dollars a year in taxes, hold no hope for any economic relief from the government. And as construction sites across the city close down, and the few that remain open threaten unsafe conditions and COVID contagion, many undocumented workers worry about how they're going to make ends meet. The Workers' Justice Project, a day labor advocacy group based in Sunset Park, has started a relief fund to help its members. But with no end in sight to our economic downturn, it's likely not enough. Uh, well, my
12: name is Gabriel Rosaliano.
13: My name is Braulio Rossolino and I've been in this country for about 15 years.
12: I've been a member of the Workers' Justice
13: Project a year and a half.
12: We're here in Sunset Park in Brooklyn. I've had it pretty bad lately. I haven't had any work for three weeks,
13: and it's been tremendously difficult because I was barely able to pay rent this
12: month. Next month,
13: to be honest, I don't know how I'm going to do it.
12: I know Trump made a commitment to help Americans, but not undocumented workers like me, right?
13: I'm very worried because I have this steady day-to-day where I work and I pay my rent and I work and I pay my rent
12: and now I won't be able to do
13: it because there's no work so I don't know what to do. I've got four kids and a wife who depend on me, depend on my work. If I can't work, then they, I don't know what's going to
12: happen. I'm here to ask the governor to do
13: whatever they can to help out migrant workers like
12: me. We are hardworking people who pay taxes, who contribute. They should at least try to find a solution to help us, because
13: we've been saying, if we don't die from the coronavirus, we'll die from these worries that we have, living here in
12: this country. This country
13: has always tried to keep us down. They've never paid attention to us. We're people who came here to work, not like the President says. We're not bad people.
12: I know a lot of my friends and family members
13: that have to come to this country to work, and they've never taken us into account, and that hurts. But we have no other choice but to just keep going.
12: They've always tried to keep us at the bottom,
13: and I don't know if anything will change.
12: We migrant workers, those of us who are undocumented, are given the dirtiest and the hardest work. Sometimes our employers abuse us because we don't have the same rights as other people. With the coronavirus pandemic happening now, our hope is that
13: legislators and elected officials will do something to give us the respect we deserve in the same way we respect this country and
12: everyone. They uh, should do something for us, right? At least they should give us a little bit of respect because we have a lot of respect for this country and for all of us. If I'm outside, I'll go back to my country, I'll go to Mexico If it were up to me alone, I would go back to my country, to Mexico, but I can't, can I?
13: I have to stay here and fight for my kids so they can have a better future than me. I don't want them to be exploited like I've been.
14: My name is Patricia soy Mexicana
15: vivo aquí Brooklyn. My name is Patricia and I'm from Mexico and I live here in Brooklyn and I'm part of the workers Justice project I work in construction for a company that installs windows and in buildings. It
14: empecé
15: semanas
14: started
15: two weeks ago. It started with a fever in the night. I had a big fever and body pains that were quite strong.
14: And then a headache, some coughing, a bit of phlegm. Every night I had a fever and body pain. At
15: the hospital, they just told me to go home and take Motrin, and that it would eventually pass.
14: I believe
15: I got sick at the workplace because my co-workers were sick. And even so, they were still showing up for work. I was working next to someone who was sick and coughing a lot and I had to send him home. I had to turn him away because he was feeling ill. They were coming to work sick because they were afraid of getting fired.
14: Van abrir Manhattan próxima semana próximo lunes They're
15: going to open the workplace in Manhattan next Monday, so I'm set to go back to work then
14: but if I'm not
15: feeling better, I won't go
14: a lot of my coworkers are still sick We said we were going
15: to step away for about two weeks, but I imagine the others were getting progressively sicker as the days went on. I've heard that the symptoms after exposure come on about two weeks later, so some of the co-workers are just developing symptoms now.
14: I haven't been able to pay my rent, and the landlady
15: has called me asking me to pay her, and... I'm not mad at her exactly because it's technically her money, but I'm like, okay, I can pay you rent, but after I'm left with nothing. My entire budget for the week went towards the rent, so it's frustrating. It's pure frustration.
14: desesperante no poder acudir a otra cosa, porque nosotros I don't have anything to
15: rely on but my job
14: also my daughter is in
15: college, and I have to pay for
14: that too. cuenta it's frustrating because I don't
15: have savings or anything like that all the money I make from my work goes to paying bills, living paycheck to paycheck I don't have any savings.
14: No es que tengo dinero ahorrado. creo que debemos mantenernos a salvo.
15: I think we need to stay safe. We have to prioritize health over work. We need to stay home. Staying home will keep people from getting infected.
14: I think we're going to
15: survive, but the bills don't wait, they keep coming, but first we have to keep our health. I think the governor and the mayor have to do something for us Latinos and immigrants because we are some of the people who are suffering the most given the loss of employment.
14: We are the ones who are doing
15: the hardest and most demanding jobs in the country.
14: We don't
15: need him to try. We need him to do it because we need it, we need it and we are solely counting on them.
14: we
16: I had the weirdest dream this weekend. What did you have? Well, what I, kind of? <laughs> I dreamt I was donating my heart. Whoa. And, Whoa. Yeah, it was really trippy. I dreamt that I was on the surgery bed and they were taking, and I could see my heart as they took it out of me. And then they filled me back up and then they took my heart away. And then, you know, I was fine at first, but then I freaked out and I just started crying, and I ran to one of my friends who's a doctor, and I was like, yo, I don't have a heart anymore. And, like, it donated my heart. And he was like, it's gonna be okay, you know. Don't. But I was just so frantic, and then I woke myself up. It was a really trippy dream. It was oh, no. like, yeah, they I, I saw them taking the heart out of me, and I almost like felt it. Like, I felt like really heavy when I woke up, so. What, even,
0: what do you think it means? really, Yeah, that's really deep. Were you scared like or just frantic?
16: I mean I was I was just like frantic I wasn't scared I was just like sad that I didn't have a heart anymore and then um and then I just like yeah I remember I have a friend a really good friend who's a neuro um like neurologist like neurology resident at NYU Langone and I remember I just like went to his office and I was like holy shit like I don't have a heart anymore and he was trying to calm me down and then he um and then I texted him the next day and I was like yo I dreamed about like I had a dream about you I dreamt that I donated my heart and you were trying to calm me down (laughs) like I was I was regretting donating my heart I don't know what it means maybe it's because I've been so I actually did look it up so a heart transplant means that you're going through a change
0: For the past two weeks, we've been dropping on on Mert Aragal, a doctor on the front line of a Brooklyn ER. But this week, we're starting our journey where most trips to the hospital start, in an ambulance. Nefertiti Dallas is an emergency medical services worker at a private EMS company in New York. While the fire department is publicly funded, private companies like hers turn a profit and have been criticized for taking dangerous cost-cutting measures to reduce overhead while charging exorbitant fees for their care. They've also been faulted for paying low wages for strenuous, stressful, and psychologically taxing work that exposes their workforce to contagion and assault. It's not hard to imagine why, considering the load they bear, EMTs and paramedics have among the highest rates of injury and illness of all occupations. And that's when we're not in pandemic. Here's Nefertiti.
17: work in New York City. For the past two weeks, almost every emergency call I have is fever, 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 fever. The city was not prepared for this. EMS was not prepared for this. The medical field was not prepared for this. I work for a private EMS company. So when I go to my base, every morning I have to get my temperature taken. Every morning. Before I walk into the base, I have to have... Some type of mask on. That is the only type of form of testing that we get. We don't get adequate testing as EMS. It's not a priority for us to get tested because if we come back positive, EMS will be out of business. There will be no ambulances on the road because if we test positive for COVID-19, we cannot do our jobs. Most EMS will probably come back positive. We're like the skin on your body. We're like the first things that come into contact. We are the first line of defense, and my job is not providing me with the proper PPE. My job has provided me with one N95 mask, and they want me to put uh, another mask over that mask to keep my N95, quote-unquote, safe. But it's not enough. Because after you use that PPE, of course, you have to discard of it. And if you have a 12 to 16 hour workday and you're getting COVID patients all day, it's impossible to, you know, protect it. I know as far as my company is concerned, a lot of EMS workers have been calling out because a lot of EMS workers have children. Some of us depend on school to keep our kids occupied while we work and feel that their child is safe while we are out making a living. So a lot of parents have been calling out because they don't have the child care to go to work. Sometimes that has happened to me personally. Um, I spoke to someone in HR and exactly what was told to me was the president of the company is going to try to hold our jobs, hold, our jobs for up to 12 weeks if there's any shifts that we're able to do if we can't do our regular you know shift she also told me that I can take family leave but if I don't have enough personal time I'm not going to get paid for it she also told me to wait for this stimulus check that may or may not be coming so basically if I can't come to work I won't get paid It has stressed me out emotionally because I'm a single parent and I have a a child who has a compromised immune system. The hardest part of this moment is knowing that I can get sick and bring it to my son. I come into contact with COVID patients every single day. I don't have the proper PPE all the time. So the hardest moment for me is possibly getting sick and have to come home to my child and, you know, give it to him. That's that's something personal. It is mentally, physically, and emotionally draining to have to deal with a pandemic, especially a pandemic in, in this world now. So me personally, I don't feel that our jobs are looking out for us. As far as financially, I don't feel like we are getting paid what we should be getting paid. A lot of private companies, we do the same thing that FDNY does. And I just feel like we should be getting some type of hazard pay for this time being, all EMS workers, whether you work for a private company, whether you work for the fire department of New York, EMS, whatever the case may be. We need to get paid more. I think we need to be recognized more and I think we need to be appreciated more especially because we are the first line of defense. We are the first ones who respond to these calls. Before these patients get to the hospital, we have to sit in the back of an ambulance with them for who knows how long. I think everyone right now should be getting hazard pay if you work EMS, but that is not the case. And I just feel like we're all on the same team and nobody should be getting treated less than. I love my job. I, I love my job. I love the experiences I have. I love meeting new people. I love I love my patients. I love my job. But if I cannot properly do my job because I don't have everything that I need, is an issue. And having PPE is, is, is a big issue for EMS right now. It's not like, oh my God, we can't do it. We signed up EMS. We know what we signed up for. We know we signed up to be on the front line. We get that part. It's just sad that, you know, us being medical professionals, we just have to basically put our life on the line. And we don't have the proper defense. Because if we don't work, we don't get paid. And if we don't work, you guys can't get to the hospital. So, this pandemic has really really shown me that you gotta you know just protect yourself I have to just stay prayed up I have to just stay cautious and I have to just make sure I do what I'm supposed to do on my end to keep myself healthy so that I can come home and still be healthy and not bring anything home to my child so again stay home and pray, that's it.
2: J.D. Rockefeller is credited with having said that he always tried to turn every disaster into an opportunity. Coming from one of the most notorious monopolist robber barons in American history, this is hardly an uplifting sentiment. But what if the coronavirus pandemic and the devastation it's thrust upon our fragile economy Present an opportunity to fashion a more just and resilient system that works for all of society and not just the Rockefellers at the top. That was the focus of a webinar recently hosted by Dale Willman, the Associate Director of the Resilience Media Program at Columbia University's Earth Institute. The talk featured social economist Juliet Shore, ecological economist John Erickson, an interdisciplinary scholar, Nate Higgins, who each laid out ideas for how we use the present Tempest as an opportunity to chart a new course.
18: We really need to ask the question, why is it that we have had so many people in debt for the last couple of decades, you know, leading up to the great financial collapse and, and now, And the answer is that we have an economy which has made it impossible for large numbers of people to get access to basic things that they need without taking on large amounts of debt, whether it's housing, education, healthcare, and a vehicle. The conversation we should be having coming out of here, how do we ensure that these basic needs are available to people without them having to take on debt? Because this current moment shows us the irrationality and the really the cruelty and the inhumanity of an economic system in which people must get access to these things in order to thrive, but yet they have to go into debt peonage to to get them.
19: You know last time around when I, when I was reflecting on the, the the Great Recession, you know that was more like a house of cards effect right where we saw how vulnerable the system was to the greed of Wall Street, a highly leveraged housing market. This time around the metaphor is maybe more like a tidal wave, right, where the pandemic has leveled entire sectors of the economy all at once. Well, the last recession that we've come out of, and, and we've created a kind of more, more vulnerable system with the Trump tax cuts and the growing student loan crisis and low interest money that has artificially boosted the stock market. So when I think about the new economy, it's at a much different scale. And ultimately, it's one that we all benefit from since you know this isn't about stimulating the private sector to get back to work right because at least in the short term people can't go back to work congress has had to swallow their neoliberal faith and realize that the base of the economy is the underemployed the underpaid the overextended worker who lives paycheck to paycheck so in the short term i'm encouraged by you know strategies of extending unemployment benefits providing checks to families suspending debt payments so that People won't get their check and use it to pay credit card bills. The bigger question to me is, what does it look you know, a few months past that? What does the bridge to that new future look like to a more resilient economy that is less beholden to global corporate interests?
20: We're head towards a bifurcated economy. Half of us have some means and are comfortably working from our houses, and the other half are worried where they're going to eat this weekend, and I think that's going to accelerate in the next... Two or three weeks. The virus is not the biggest story. The two big stories are the uh, fragility of our financial system and the inequalities of the bottom half of our society not being able to afford basic needs. There's emergency measures. The government needs to provide basic needs. They're talking about a thousand dollar check to every American. That's not going to do crap. We need to actually do a thousand dollars a month for every American. Maybe you know, backdoor in Andrew Yang's universal basic income idea right now. We need massive support financially, economically for health and human services. We will not
18: have a sustainable or resilient or whatever term you want to use, ecologically viable economy if we continue to produce at the scale that we are doing. And there's no way to really reduce scale, I don't think, in wealthy countries without reducing working hours. The current moment gives us a great opportunity for telling news stories about people who are working fewer hours per day, producing less, and let's also look at the ways daily life is changing for people in, in some ways that, you know we could think about going forward with that smaller economy.
19: We've seen, you know, in the past month or two, Chinese coal consumption is down, steel production is down, oil refining is down, air travel is down and altogether. Estimates are that China's carbon emissions as, as one data point have dropped perhaps as, as, as at least 25 percent just in a month you know that's that's more than all the climate negotiations have, have ever achieved so and we're se- seeing similar uh, reports of clean air in cities around the world including New York you know maybe just maybe this will help us all stop and think about the slow erosion of all the things that we take for granted right air water climate, you know, maybe this will reset our expectations of what's possible, and and will readjust our goals and priorities for a, a post-pandemic economy. So, if we're searching for a silver lining, maybe it's about a mass realization that there is a different way. There are bridging strategies, there are emergency strategies, there are strategies that kind of bring back some normalcy of the system that we're used to, and then there's the opportunity to be thinking about. Um, you know, have done some work on the Green New Deal, to be thinking about stimulus kind of package in a different way, right, to be stimulating the economy in ways where we're just not, um, you know, hoping for consumerism to save us, but a, a, an actual break from the past, you know, as with the old New Deal is essentially a stimulus plan, but with purpose and and direction with with a critical focus on the most vulnerable people and communities in America. And I I can't think of a more important narrative right now than what's been proposed in the Green New Deal.
20: What is an economy to begin with? We take uh, ideas and we combine natural resources with energy to make products that give us the feelings that our ancestors had in the past. Well, a lot of those feelings are incredibly resource intensive today. And so I think a more sustainable economy, we would get those same feelings of dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin and collaboration and the warmth of community using less resources. We are uh, facing the end of growth. So all futures are going to have to use the same or less, I would argue 30 to 50% less energy. And what that means is we can no longer have GDP as our global cultural human objective. We need massive new research on new metrics for well being that aren't just statistics that we get from economists, but are based on surveys and interactions with people. Right now, what are people doing? They're living, they're working from home. Uh, what are the things that are working? What are the things that aren't working? Because the, the GDP statistics that are going to come out are going to be horrible. So those numbers don't mean anything anymore. We have to start looking at what is it for? What is our goal? And so I think uh, ecological and human well-being, replacing GDP with some sort of social and natural capital matrix is, is a good direction. All the serotonin and laughter and joy I get from my dog, that's not included in GDP. You make love with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you go for a walk in the woods, all these things that are not quantified in our success of how we enjoy our lives are not remotely included. But going to Disneyland or taking a trip to Fiji or Tahiti, uh, things like that uh, boost GDP quite a bit. So we have to get away from the burning towards the well being.
7: Last month, the governor of Illinois authorized a state official to meet a middleman in a McDonald's parking lot with a $3.5 million check to pay for a shipment of N95 masks from China. The official had to be there by 2 p.m. Arrive any later, they were told, and the deal would be off. A bidding war was about to begin for the merchandise. The shortage of PPE, or personal protective equipment, is real. Doctors are reusing what was once considered disposable gear and have to sign out masks to carry around in paper bags. Some are using trash bags as coveralls, using shreds of their own gowns to cover their faces, and some are even making their own equipment at home. Before two months ago, PPE was hardly a household name, and it's probably safe to say few people had ever given much thought to how hospitals get their gear. But we're living in unusual times, and the scarcity and competition over N95 masks almost feels like a measure of our collective well-being, or lack thereof. Given the N95's outsized importance to those in the front lines, we thought it would be a good idea to talk to some of the people who link the supply chain, whether for hospitals, collectives, or loved ones.
11: My name is Pedro Vega. I'm a certified materials resource professional. I'm the systems vice president for all of One Brooklyn Health System for supply chain. And I oversee Brookdale Medical Center, Interfaith Medical Center, Kingsbrook Jewish Medical Center, the Rutland nursing home, and the Shackney nursing home as well.
7: And One Brooklyn Health is a public hospital system and perhaps the biggest provider of health care in central and eastern Brooklyn.
11: These are some of the worst times, i gotta be honest with you, 40 years, I've never imagined seeing this except for seeing it in the movies. I think we're ground zero. We're, we're really getting over-inundated with um, patients I could say 80% of the patients are COVID. Uh, Whether it's COVID positive, patients that are possible, that have the symptoms, even it's affecting our staff, we've lost some of our family. Very, very stressful time. And, you know, uh, trying to get supplies is the biggest issue uh, for us to make sure we can protect our employees and, you know, attend to the patients at the same time.
7: Vega says that on a normal day before COVID, The hospital would put a case of PPE supplies in a bio unit if there was a patient under infection control, and they'd replenish it approximately every other day.
11: Before where you used to get a box or a case, you're probably getting two, three, or four, five cases a day. So we're we're going through stock a lot faster uh, than I could ever imagine.
7: He says the hospital has a monthly allocation that's been impossible to enlarge.
11: They have reduced that allocation. So we're only getting out of the 100, we're getting 40 cases, for example, and it makes it a lot more difficult, as you can see with this pandemic. We need 200 cases, 300 cases, or 400 cases, if not more.
7: He's also seen a troubling increase in price.
11: A mask used to cost me 5 cents, 4 cents, and if you go out there and find out what a mask is now, uh, anywhere it's from 80 cents to $1.20, I've seen it each. That's insane, totally insane. And n 95s has gone up by two, three, four dollars each, which I find not fair to what's going on in non pandemic when basically those same masks were costing us, you know, a thousand percent less than what we're paying now.
7: The supply chain was once about steady relationships, but with the rise of opportunistic middlemen and brokers, the market has become muddled.
11: Where were they before the pandemic? prior to this and never heard from a broker. And we never had someone that's gonna go out there and look for masks or any type of supplies for us. You know, going through all these crises in the past, you have to put things in order. So first thing is we count on our distributors to supply our needs. So if they're only supplying us 40%, you know, and I really need 100%, really need like three or 400%, what else do I need to do?
7: There's a general purchasing organization that seeks out deals on behalf of this group. But support from state and local government has enabled them to steer clear of the brokers.
11: Dealing with brokers, you know, you're putting that hospital in jeopardy. uh, You know, they're also asking for 50% up front. Some people I'm hearing are not even getting the supplies. My colleagues have, you know, tried that and still haven't received their supplies. I thank God for the state that we are getting the supplies that we need. If we did not have the state government on our side trying to help us, I think we would really, really be in a bad state of mind right now
7: some private hospitals and nursing homes are finding they have to fend for themselves. I spoke with Josh Silverberg, co-founder of the Society for Healthcare Organization Procurement Professionals, or SHOP, and his partner Ari Stawis, who provide education and advocacy for purchasing directors and consult on the procurement process.
3: A bunch of clients, we all placed a big order together with a a manufacturer. I wasn't actually on the order, but I helped organize it. We placed it, left China, stopped in a country. Got stuck there. The country took it, paid China. We all got our money back, and then that country took it and is sending it to the U.S. Or they kept some of it for themselves because their country needs it as well. Which is another issue: is that a bunch of people will bid on a million items, and then Saudi Arabia or some other country will come and make a higher bid, and they'll lose it. We're bidding on a dollar ten per mask. Another country will come in, bid a dollar twenty-five, and then they'll get the bid.
7: They say they were prepared to take a hit but that no one anticipated how hard the hit would be. But I
4: think it's fair to say that nobody thought that it would come to this, of how scarce and,
3: you know, the price
7: gouging. I asked if they're frustrated by the current climate of sourcing supplies. <laughs> I think my laugh is enough to explain that.
3: <laughs> the frustration is, one, the price. Two is finding it and also having consistent supply of it. Also, these are products that we need to save people's lives. It shouldn't be so difficult or this difficult for us to get them. That's one of the biggest frustrations that people are having.
4: To add to that, is in the past, it was so easy to get this that now it's sort of becoming a full-time job to be this investigator of just getting the product. And then after all that work, you realize that someone's just spending an exorbitant amount of money on it. So adding to the frustration is you literally have to become a detective now just to get your hands on something.
21: I'm going to get emotional talking about it, but um, this project is an act of love, you know. I love my husband, and and I had a really selfish desire to keep him safe and healthy.
7: Stephanie Mendez has become just this kind of detective. Her husband, Zach, is a registered nurse in Manhattan. After a trip to Paris, they self-quarantined, and upon reading about the shortages in PPE, decided to use their time in isolation to procure enough equipment for when he'd return to work.
21: Just made it my mission just to reach out to everyone that I knew on social media and just friends and family to ask if they themselves had masks that they weren't planning on using or if they knew of distributors and and vendors of masks. So spent that time um, scouring the internet, talking to lots of unpleasant folks on eBay, (laughs) avoiding some price gougers at the same time. Whenever I saw an influencer with an N95 mask, which is the mask that our medical professionals need the most right now, I would say, hey, do you happen to have one or two lying around that you don't think you're going to need? You know, I'll pay for shipping. Will you send those to me? We ended up driving around the city one day and collecting one, two masks at a time. In terms of method and process, it's really just... People texting me and saying, Hey, I think that this store on 72nd Street, I think that I saw a mask in the window, and me calling that store and verifying and then having them send it to me.
7: Part of the challenge has been determining whether the masks she's finding are legit.
21: I've spent a lot, a lot of energy just had a phone call with someone in Singapore this morning, just trying to get them to verify that whatever it is that they're trying to sell is, you know, not counterfeit. And that has been very difficult. So, Not only are the items just scarce, the majority of the things that I've encountered are just counterfeit and will potentially cause more harm than not.
7: And the markup for the masks is rooted in the fact that there's no substitute for the genuine article.
21: There really is no alternative to an N95. And so I've been paying at this point whatever people want for them because I know that there really is no other alternative.
7: Early on in the process, she got gouged by a seller online.
21: So typically they run around two dollars, maybe a little bit less if you're buying like in bulk. I've paid upwards of forty-five dollars per. That was just a couple of masks that I found on eBay and they just would not budge and so I ended up
7: soon she was able to supply enough stock for her husband. But a greater need soon revealed itself.
21: Once Zach got to work, you know, he talked to some coworkers who were wearing the same N ninety five for, you know, nearly two weeks and again it's an item that should be disposed of after each patient and so that was alarming you know despite the fact that we hear on television and from our public officials that PPE is on its way or has been distributed what we're hearing from folks on the ground is that PPE has actually not been distributed to them and they continue to reuse their masks and maybe they
7: re- Stephanie decided to continue her pursuit of PPE and try to supply other workers in hospitals around the city
21: So we really quickly pivoted to now how many people can we distribute these items to. That's when we turned to our friends and family and said, hey, we are at a point where we've spent over $4,000 of our own money on this. And we feel like we have enough supplies here where... We're gonna be able to distribute to a number of hospitals. And so that's where we are now. Um, We're at a place where tomorrow we're gonna start distributing to a hospital in the Bronx. Um, There's another hospital in Brooklyn that we've identified. And then of course, Sachs Hospital in, in Manhattan. It's worth it. It's worth it to keep these people who are putting their lives on the line safe.
7: While Josh and Ari say that since China is slowly coming back online, prices are coming down. But a recent search for n 95 masks on eBay turned up a box of 10 with a top bid of $680. Two hours later, that bid had jumped to $1,025.
22: strike wave. Noun. A series of strikes spanning numerous industries and public utilities. Etymology. A compound formed by the unhyphenated combination of strike and wave. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, strike means to unfix, to put out of use. A common West Germanic strong verb. In Old English, S-T-R-I-C-A-N. Wave, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, means a swelling onward movement and subsistence a movement of common sentiment, opinion, and excitement, sweeping over a community, and not easily resisted. It was derived from the Old English W-A-F-I-A-N, corresponding formally to Middle High German and Rare Modern German. Sociolectical Information In The Empire of Necessity, Greg Grandin gives us a history of the phrase to strike, as it refers to labor stoppage. He writes, The phrase comes from maritime history, and is an example of how revolutionary times can redefine a word to mean its exact opposite. Through the 17th and much of the 18th century, to strike was used as a metaphor for submission, referring to the practice of captured ships dropping or striking their sails, and of subordinate ships doing the same to salute their superiors. But in 1768, London sailors turned the term inside out. Joining city artisans and tradesmen in the fight for better wages, they struck their sails and paralyzed the city's commerce. From this point forward, strike meant the refusal of submission. History and Usage Since the Industrial Revolution in the mid-1800s, strike waves have periodically swept over the United States. According to the Encyclopedia of Strikes in American History, major strike waves occurred in 1877, 1919, 1937, and 1946. In each case, the number of strikes and the number of workers on strike jumped each time a new wave hit. The demonstration effect is one reason strikes come in waves. The example of some striking workers often inspired others, even in different industries or far-flung parts of the country. Solidarity also plays a role in strike waves, as strikers know that their walkouts can draw strength from and reinforce walkouts already in progress. Equally, if not more important, is the larger economic, political, and social context. Example A... The strike wave of the 1930s drew inspiration from the social and political atmosphere of the New Deal and encouragement from the activity of radicals, socialists, and communists. Example B. The 1919 strike wave overlapped with the 1918-1919 through influenza pandemic. Four million workers struck in 1919, one-fifth of the workforce. Example Sentence. In response to low wages, lack of protective gear, close and contaminated quarters, failure to provide adequate sick and family leave, not offering extra compensation for life-threatening work, and more, essential workers at Amazon and Instacart organized sickouts, walkouts, and protests, sparking a strike wave across the United States.
5: Millions of people in the United States are filing for unemployment right now. I know how frustrating this is for you guys because all of these websites are being completely overwhelmed at once. It takes so long. It takes some people hours um, to file these applications because these websites are crashing. Our system has never seen a shock like this before.
18: Welcome to the New York State Department of Labor's contact center. Please press one for English.
12: Bienvenido.
23: If you have questions related to unemployment insurance, please press 1. If you have questions related to labor standards, including minimum wage, work hours, child labor regulations, or other labor related issues, including the status of an active investigation, please press 2. If you're calling to speak with the Worker Exploitation Task Force, please press 3. If you're in need of assistance using your NY.gov ID or Unemployment Insurance Employer Online Services, please press 4. If you have questions related to career center services, hiring and recruitment, apprenticeship, Trade Act 599 program, or self-employment, please press 5. For all other questions not related to unemployment insurance, please press 6. To repeat this message, if you have an unemployment claim-related question, please press 1. If you need assistance with your username, password, technical assistance, or navigational assistance with a New York State Department of Labor online account, please press two. To repeat this message, please press nine. Agents at this location cannot access unemployment benefits or claimant information and are unable to assist anyone with questions related to unemployment insurance. The TCC is the only office that can answer specific questions or take action on an unemployment insurance claim. Please hang up and dial 1-888-209-8124. If you live outside of New York State, You may call 1-877-358-5306, or you may visit the Department of Labor website at labor.ny.gov. To repeat this message, please press 9.
10: Okay, that wasn't fruitful. Let's try again. Let's try something else.
18: Welcome to the New York State Department of Labor's contact center please press one for
23: English. If you have questions related to unemployment insurance, please press one. To repeat this message, please press nine. If you're an individual with a question about how to file a claim for unemployment insurance benefits or about your existing claim for benefits, please press 1. If you're an employer with questions about your unemployment insurance account, please press 2. If you're an individual or an employer with a question about creating or using account, please press 3. To repeat this,
2: please
15: call the telephone claims center at
17: 8882098124. Thank you.
10: Okay, eight 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 two zero nine eight one two four. Okay, calling. Well, how long is it going to take to connect? Failed to connect because the number was busy. Okay, you don't hear a busy signal, they just tell you. Let's try again. 888-209-8124 Failed to connect because the number was busy. Hmm. Let me try from my cell phone. Okay, well, I did hear from somebody that you have to call this number early in the morning. Let's see if there's another way. Let's call the other number again. And see what happens if I try to find out I try to find out about self-employment.
18: Welcome to the New York State Department of Labor's Contact Center.
16: Please press
23: if you have questions related to unemployment insurance, please press one. If you have questions related to labor standards, including minimum wage
8: for quality assurance. Your call may be monitored or recorded.
23: So I pressed five. We are experiencing a high volume of calls. You may experience extended wait times. We apologize for the inconvenience. You may continue to hold for the next available agent, or you can visit our website at labor.ny.gov. Thank you for your continued patience. a high volume of calls, we apologize for the inconvenience. Please continue to hold for the next available agent. Thank you.
5: recommendation would be that this will happen so much faster online than calling on the phone. Please leave the phone for people with disabilities and other accessibility problems. You know, let's prioritize those folks for the phone. Pull up labor.ny.gov slash sign in. There will be a little questionnaire about your eligibility. And if you're eligible, you will be approved and you'll automatically receive that unemployment insurance or PUA benefits for 39 weeks. So not only are there more people eligible, not only are you getting more money than you would have normally gotten, but you're also going to be eligible for longer. And if you are not traditionally eligible for UI benefits, gig workers, Uber, Lyft, drivers, uh, 1099, freelancers, I'm talking to you. If you're not traditionally eligible for UI benefits, you are now eligible to apply for the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, which is that $600. Weekend weather is griffin'. Weekend weather with griffin'. Hey everybody, it's junior meteorologist Griff City, talking about the weekend weather, your city, Brooklyn, USA. Friday, high 51, low 37, it will be windy. Saturday, high 55, low 42, it will be sunny. Sunday, high 60, low 53, it will be partly cloudy. Weekly Fun Fact Did you know that some seahorses can give birth to over 1,000 babies at one time? Be kind to others. Thank you for listening, Brooklyn!
0: Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias.
22: And me, Emily Bogosian,
0: And me, Shirin Barri.
2: And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Carol Palmer. And me, Ross Tuttle.
0: And me, Mayumi Sato. With help this week from Justin Bryant, Brick Radio Junior Meteorologist Griff City, Taylor Cook, Lauren Germain, Isabel Alcantara, Fred Brown, Veronica White, Matthew McFeely, and Hannah Epperson. If you want to help Zach and Stephanie procure PPE, check the show notes for a link to their GoFundMe. If you want to help everybody else, stay inside. If you have something to say and want us to share it, call 917-719-0021. Tell us your name, where you're calling from, how to reach you, and anything else you want to get off your chest. It can be a story, a joke, a secret, a coping mechanism, a dream, a regret, or a thing that made you smile. Or you can recommend a movie, or a book, or an app, or an album, or yes, even another podcast. If you like what you hear, comment, like, share, and subscribe, and follow @bricktv on Twitter and Instagram for updates. And while the app is open, check out Brooklyn for all the new, exciting, and socially distanced arts, music, and cultural programming that we're beaming right into your living room. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit BrickArtsMedia.org slash radio.
23: We are experiencing a high volume of calls. You may experience extended wait times. We apologize for the inconvenience. You may continue to hold for the next available agent or... You can visit our website at labor.ny.gov. Thank you for your continued patience. a high volume of calls, we apologize for the inconvenience. Please continue to hold for the next available agent. Thank you. a high volume of calls. You may experience extended wait times. We apologize for the inconvenience. You may continue to hold for the next available agent or you can visit our website at labor.ny.gov. Thank you for your continued patience.
10: Okay, I'm going to hang up now.